Hi, I'm Ricardo Deacon. And I'm Orla Magnilis. And welcome to The Recommendation Game. Each week, we take turns to pick a film the other has not seen, and when we meet to discuss it. This week's film is 1974's The Conversation, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, produced by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> starring Gene Hackman, John Cazales, Alan Garfield, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest, with music by David Shire, and cinematography by Bill Butler, edited by Walter Murch and Richard Chu. The IMDb synopsis is a paranoid secretive surveillance expert has a crisis of conscience when he suspects that a couple he's spying on will be murdered. Well, for once, it is quite accurate. That was very succinct. Very good IMDb. Yeah, I find that older films tend to have better uh, descriptions than IMDb. I'm kind of disappointed. I like the, <laughs> the one for Weekend and The Wind Rises are so succinct. <laughs> And overwhelmed that they... Well, no, the the wind rises was uh, <laughs> didn't really sum up the film at all. It was incredibly uh, vague. This film was picked by Orla. So, Orla, why did you pick this movie to have a conversation about? Um, I picked this film because for you it's a serious blind spot because I'm fairly sure you've seen every other one of Coppola's films, or certainly every film from his master streak of uh from the 70s to when what was the streak kind of from the 60s to the 72 probably for the first godfather until mm, after the conversation <laughs> <laughs> oh no the conversation was between two and three yeah and then when did apocalypse now fall 77 mm, so the in the 70s really was that but yeah it was a serious blind spot for you and i think this is the kind of film that doesn't feel necessarily dated in its themes i think it's still relevant in a lot of the stuff that it's exploring and i think it's interesting so that's why i picked it well the my take on the film is that i really like it mm -hmm. um i'm a big coppola fan as you know i've seen pretty much all his films even one from the heart, um, <laughs> uh, like, and I do enjoy also like Rumblefish and The Outsiders. Even his minor work yeah. is quite enjoyable for me. Uh, particularly um, Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, which of the films that are not like one of his big films, mm. something with heart. I did enjoy the conversation. Uh, doing this podcast, I realized how hard endings are because yes. my biggest issue with the movie again is oh, the ending really which we will get to okay um, interesting but i think it's a very very good movie particularly looking back on it it's so prescient uh considering like that this is like 40 years pre-wikileaks and snowden mm. and everything it's interesting as well that this came out before watergate yeah, and is... you know, it, but I think it still manages to capture the kind of atmosphere even before Watergate, which is interesting. But yeah, a lot the of people, kind of paranoia, the... yeah, but people had kind of sort of Cold War paranoia, really. But a lot of people kind of assumed that it was in a reaction to Watergate, but it actually came out, and he wrote it in the sixties, I think. So yeah, like it's a, it is a very good movie, like I said, but I do not think it compares with the quality of his masterpieces. Hmm. I think that it'll be like on the second tier of Coppola films. Let's say that there's four his masterpieces, which would be three Godfather 1 and 2 Apocalypse Now. Hmm. This would be the second tier. Yeah. That it's good movies. And then you have the dog shit. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I feel I feel that way. Like, Well, actually, you just gave him three tiers. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I don't know if I necessarily... I kind of think that this is sort of the the overlooked Coppola film in a way. And like, as much as I love those four films, and particularly Godfather 2, um, I just... You know, they're, they're quite... They're just these big films. And this is such a... Especially Apocalypse Now. But I think this is quite a understated film in a lot of ways. Uh, entirely, but yeah, there's... There's one thing, um, like well, a few questions I want to ask you, but because um, there's one scene in the film that kind of sticks out to me as weirdly out of place, and I kind of wonder what your take on it is, and that's um, the strange dream sequence. Yes, I have in my notes is mm. hugely in bold and mm. capital letters in exposition through dreams. <laughs> uh, one of my pet peeves in movies. It's completely out of Here's place. Here's my entire childhood. <laughs> It's like if he, if Coppola had too much wine from his vineyard. He died. He died a month later, <laughs> while wearing his creepy, creepy like. Oh, his raincoat! Oh his my god, he, which Ooh. never takes off. Like no, even when he no, sits no, down with no, his literally lady. He's drinking wine and like. <laughs> uh, in the throes. Yeah. Well, like a, <clears throat> like that raincoat is special, and it's kind of like I've, I've seen Enemy from the State. <laughs> Enemy of the state. Enemy oh, from yes, the state. The, I'm the enemy from the it's state. It's kind of like the uh, spiritual sequel, kind of really, isn't it? It's yeah, supposed to be? but like it's directed by Tony Scott. So yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Not, not even. <laughs> <laughs> it's not until um, it's like, oh yeah, Top Gun is a war movie. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's only the third time Ricardo has brought up Top Gun today. Um, oh, like it's a normal day for Ricardo then. <laughs> No I feel fear. like um, we've jumped ahead a little bit there. So if you want to go back to... Yeah, uh, the uh, looking back, obviously, it's a movie that I've known about for a long time. It's been on my list of what to watch, but somehow I never got around to watching it. Mm. Um, it's quite interesting that before watching the movie, I knew that uh, this, interestingly enough, is the second film that Haskell Wexler was oh, fired from yeah. and replaced by Bill Burr. Yes, but also what I think is interesting Bill Butler, is sorry. Um, yeah, sorry, Bill, Bill Burr. <laughs> um, the only part of uh, Wexler's work that they kept was the opening shot, apparently. Yeah, the, yeah. The, no, the entire first scene apparently was shot by. Wexler, oh yeah, yeah. And they <clears> couldn't <throat> reshoot it because it would have been too expensive because it's in dark. Mm. But it's kind of impressive from the great Bill Butler. Like he, he's done other stuff like Jaws mm. and the Rocky movies, especially Rocky Four. That's a montage in the snow. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. But uh, like, it's quite impressive. Like, you realize the depth of seventies kind of cinematography that you can yeah. fire the great Haskell Wessler and get somebody and, like Bill Burr as a replacement. Yeah, and I, I find that Bill all, Burr is Bill Butler. Sorry, <laughs> that's gonna keep happening. Um, no, I, I I think it's quite interesting that like you would never notice that it's switched. You'd never notice that it's, they've moved to a different cinematographer. And I think like a lot of the time. Um, Okay, I don't want to say that he's doing a Gordon Willis impression, but, you know, obviously because of The Godfather and everything, Gordon Willis kind of is there in the background with Coppola. But I think, like, there are certain scenes in this, and that's obviously an aspect of 70 cinema in general, but there's some really beautiful, incredibly dark scenes in this, like shots where I think his glasses are used to really great effect. Um, particularly in the, the office where Harrison Ford is in mm, uh, yeah. those, those scenes really <laughs> reminded me of uh, uh, The Conformist yeah 
uh, like the the use of light and shadows and the industrial kind of like tableau of the scene. Yeah, and it, it is uh, like a fantastically well shot movie. Like the, oh, yeah. his office is just incredible. Like locations as well mm. for LA as well. It's like LA can be so easily bland. It doesn't. It doesn't look like LA. Like uh, no, I mean like any decade of LA. I don't think it looks like seventies LA. Like even even that shot in the park and everything. Like it's it doesn't feel even like his office building and stuff. It feels yeah. I thought that was kind of yeah. Interesting. Even when the the when he goes down to the basement to his to his girlfriend's apartment, and I was thinking <laughs> from Zodiac, how many basements are there in California? <laughs> <laughs> not many people have basements in California. That's where Zodiac as well. <laughs> Well, that's not the first, that's not the only Zodiac connection we've got going on here. Well, before we get to uh, talking about more, mm-hmm. I'm just going to remind viewers mm. and listeners that this is, <laughs> we do go into spoiler territory. I forgot to give that <laughs> warning in the beginning oh. because today my housekeeping is terrible. Uh, but uh, the other thing, like straight away as the movie started, I have one of those like wind rises, earthquake moments. As in yeah. when somebody Sign says something design. completely ridiculous after something like when they the couple the uh, uh. that their <laughs> the uh, Jean Hackman is recording walk up to a homeless man that's sitting there and she just goes look at him mm. I'm like oh that's terrible <laughs> but like they're like two feet away from him like if you could, like <laughs> Jane Hackman can hear you from like 10,000 meters uh, your man is like yeah probably in a drunken stupor from like but that doesn't paper matter wine. Like, he still it's... has feelings and hopefully a good supply of newspapers going through the, the film I also felt like the other influence the, uh, the sense of paranoia and you yeah. were saying of uh, like Cold War stuff or not mm. remind me of like Sam Fuller's work mm. like uh, Pick Up on South Street or something yeah the, that is that sense that is like everybody's against you yeah but in that kind of like creepy subtle way that was actually going to be one of my questions was um, do you find this film unsettling or creepy or oh yeah like uh, like the scene when after Harrison Ford uh, tries to get the tapes of Gene Hackman yeah. and then just follows him around going like give me the tapes yeah. it was so creepy but like in other moments it's very creepy like in the sense that when they have the party you're mm. just thinking like they're gonna steal something or somebody's gonna put a recording device there yeah. or something you're you're waiting. Always... you're waiting for something to happen all the time it was like a very funny movie as well. Like the copper. Yeah, that, that was that was another thing I was going to ask you. Was that did you find this funny? And I think that Harrison Ford is actually really funny in this. I <laughs> hated his performance. Oh really? I, I think that I don't he, think he's great, but he's kind of entertaining. Yeah, because Harrison Ford has always been like a one note actor. Yeah, he's like the George Clooney of the seventies. Like he can only <laughs> do versions of Harrison Ford, with the sole exception of the Mosquito Coast, which he plays like an absolute fucking devil of a person <laughs> but in this uh even like you can tell he's a bit nervous because he's like pre-star wars kind oh of thing. yeah he was very young yeah very green he, and very you, green yeah. and you can tell that uh, like him trying to be menacing it, it felt like he's like a 14 yeah, year old trying to be menacing it doesn't quite like when that scene whenever he sees him um 
on uh, the video camera. I actually really like that as well. That you know, you don't see him in the crowd. You see him on the, in the camera. Yeah. In the crowd. In the, that, in the that, conference, it, it's yeah. That's creepy, sort of, but not quite to the level of creepiness that would have achieved if you'd had a more seasoned, more just weirdly, you know, the kind of actor that can just do creepily menacing like Ben Mendelsohn or someone. Yeah, but just that his just, walk kind of yeah, like carries that. Just, that you know, exudes it in everything they do, yeah. Like, I laugh my my ass off <clears> when uh, uh, Harrison Ford sits down to talk to Jim Hackman there in the <laughs> conference and a saxophone goes by. Like, some dude <laughs> randomly carrying a saxophone and it's clearly because Jim Hackman uh, plays the saxophone throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah. It's just, like, a little callback, but, like, it, it's so weird because it comes out of nowhere. You're, like, in the <laughs> conference about, like, audio recording and it's like, I wonder if that's true as well. Like, I should have checked because it's like like i would like to go to oh, i know it was so interesting i did love that though how gene hackman is like a celebrity he's like this weird sort of he doesn't want anyone to talk to him or to ask him questions about anything and yeah, he's mean, just there uh, and they're like oh will you take our product will you use it you know could we, could we pose for a photograph and he's there like no your man alan garfield is hilarious your man that plays bernie that tries to keep oh. convincing uh gene hackman we can go into to- business we can go into business me and you me and you like, oh, this is the product. This is how did you do that? And he's like, I can figure it out. I can figure out anything. It's like, it's like you threw the microphone at them. It's like the the most ridiculous character ever. And yeah, I have to before forgetting to mm. mention the great John Cazale, mm. who like uh, Stanley. Oh man, like he's. It's so sad, like, that he made five films, mm. and all five films were nominated for best picture. Like yeah. that's. The closest thing to that is James Dean. Yeah. And it's such a pity that, like, he died so young and, like, mm. in the middle of, like, doing The Deer Hunter as well, which is, yeah. like, for my money, his best performance. Like, even better than Fredo and oh, Dog Day Afternoon, which, like, I think, don't think that they're overrated performances at all, but I think that his performance in The Deer Hunter is always forgotten about. Well, I think Christopher Walken kind of takes, he takes over that film, definitely. So it's kind of, yeah, you're fighting for space. <laughs> and like, I, I laughed out, like, um, another bit in the end that I'll get to. I laughed at the very end of the movie. And I wonder if you caught the joke as well. Mm. Uh, the other thing like I laughed is like how he lies to his girlfriend uh, about his age but he just <laughs> takes two years of himself well, no, like, I, no no I think he is actually 42 but uh, but like in the card yeah but it's 44. but it's from it's from his landlady I love that actually that that whole scene I think is brilliantly done whenever he calls her and he's Don't like call me. <laughs> Um, no, but he's like, how old do you think I am? And she's like, he obviously says 44. And he's like, oh, that's a good guess. But I think he is actually 42. I think that's the impression I got from it anyways. I don't know if that's... Well, maybe it's up for like... But, uh, the, like... the idea is that it is kind of well, ambivalent kind of thing. Yeah, I think as well, it's just sort of... It is the kind of thing that he would lie about anyways. Because ultimately, the mystery of this is him. Like, he's the main, you know, his character is the main mystery that everyone is and the audience is trying to figure out, which is mainly why I have such a problem with that dream sequence. Oh, like the dream. Oh, man, that uh, dream. It's so badly shot as well. Like, everything about and it. And the it's... fog and the, the, this, oh, yeah. 
I, yeah, but we'll get to that. I love your frustration. It's always like uh, every time that you get frustrated or anything, it's just like the words disappear. And it's just like... <laughs> I have no words, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> uh, the, that scene with the girlfriend was when I really <clears throat> got the, the sense of the, the clever ways that Coppola builds up uh, the... Uh, paranoia mm. that his girlfriend starts singing the song that the girl was <gasps> singing and in the, yeah that's yeah and, and it's, it's such a creepy little song and she sings it almost in the same way as well yeah, <clears> like i think it's yeah timbre Is yeah timbre 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 mm. like uh, also like his obsession with his work like mm. i said in the first podcast uh the first episode about weekend that i love movies that um uh, that follow somebody's job that the movie yeah. is about somebody's job and this reminded me weirdly of the samurai uh, mm. that is that sense that you are your job yeah and that uh he feels that his job defines him yeah it's a, a it is it's, a, it's his entire life like other than other than his girlfriend that he clearly infrequently visits and pays um, for his rent and, yeah uh, it's yeah it's sad kind of existence and it's kind of like uh that character of the girlfriend i kind of hate it but mainly because i don't really like that actress she's always like the yeah the, the weird uh, character in the movie like richard Dreyfus' wife in close encounters and i can't remember what was the other movie but usually she's like portrayed even though like in close encounters she's right because richard Dreyfus is going mental you still end up <laughs> Rooting for yeah, Richard Dreyfuss because I, she just... She has a weird... She has a strange manner. Like, she's... She's, like, girlish or... or I don't know. It, there's something kind of weird about her that's, like, unsettling or something that doesn't... Yeah, she, really... de- she delivers, like, a, every mm, line. Like, she... Like it was little... one of the twin... The twin sisters in The Shining. Actually, it's funny you mentioned The Shining because I think there's a few things in this that really made me think of The Shining. Um... One of them is that, like the the shot of um, the model of the park. Oh yeah, like yeah, the... um, yeah. The oh. other uh, thing that made me think of the shining was the hotel and the hotel room. So it was like seven seven three seven or something, and and how as well. Um, there's a lot of kind of um, shots of like where he's kind of thinking about the hotel room and different versions of what happens in the hotel room and stuff. And you know that that really made me think of um, of the shining. Yeah, like the the first issue that I had with the movie that was like mm. actually like a big issue besides the dream sequence, but I think this comes before the dream sequence. Yeah. Is when he's talking to the woman at the party, Anne. Yeah. And straight away in my head is like, yeah, don't trust her. Like that's the trope of like, oh, somebody that is reserved goes and then there's a woman and she's after him and then she betrays him but at the yeah. same time i don't know like looking back on a film that is like 40 years old that i don't know if it has become a cliche since yeah. or if it was a cliche then as well you know like uh because it it is kind of a film noir trope but at the same time yeah for it to be a film noir trope the female character is more developed then. yeah she's not just in one scene yeah which yeah. she is in this movie yeah yeah um yeah one of the the questions i was going to ask you was um if you saw the twist coming well uh i didn't see the twist coming uh well is the twist that robert duvall is in the movie and he's not credited <laughs> and i didn't mention because i wanted the, t- the audience here to to feel the twist <laughs> 
hi Robert. Um, but, um, yeah, like uh, I didn't see it coming. But my problem is that I don't think that the twist matters. And mm. I, uh, if we're getting to, if we're gonna discuss the ending now because it's just the twist comes to the ending. Mm. I, I really like the last scene, like when he knows that he's been recorded and yeah. starts going. But I think that the twist and the whole part in the hotel is a waste of time mm. because mainly he doesn't do anything. He's so passive, like he's just recording a murder. No matter what happens, like why did he go there? Like it's the only point in the movie that I, I went, why is he doing that? Because he's like breaking character in the sense of being active but then not doing anything about it like he's just gonna record that's, the... that's almost in a way like true to character because in order to go to the hotel is already a massive thing for him to get involved that i could never imagine him bursting in and stopping a murder like yeah but i like think a... that would have been well like i don't say like a bursting <laughs> in like a mm. like if he went and like rang reception and order like like a uh, room service or something for that room for for interrupt a moment and i thought that he was gonna do something like that but my point is well, that yeah. uh, <clears throat> that it doesn't make a difference that if the girl uh, played by cindy williams mm. um sorry i got confused uh, meredith is the person that uh, uh that betrays him and is robert duvall's daughter mm. uh that kills robert duvall uh, I thought that it would make a difference if Duval or her got killed. Yeah. I think that because her character is not established whatsoever in the movie and yeah. the relationship is are, is not established whatsoever, Duval is literally in one scene, barely. Mm. So for me, it just makes no difference. It'd be, like, it'd be almost more interesting yeah. if it is that you're going to record and not do anything, mm. that you, you were right and you knew that she she was going to get killed. Yeah. And you still didn't do anything and you recorded. If that's, if Cole is going to be passive. Yeah. I think that she should have died. I think it's a twist for the sake of a twist. Yeah. It's almost just a twist in order to have that scene where he sees her in the car and sees him in the hallway and it's like, you know, yeah, it's sort of a weirdly overly dramatic reveal almost. Yeah, because it goes like, like if it is the end of the world, it's like still like the, the principle is that he knew somebody was going to get killed and mm. didn't do anything about it and just recorded a murder and then went home. Yeah. And no matter who got killed, yeah, that, that is there. So I think that that kind of marred the movie a bit because it was the only time besides the dream sequence that mm. even though like I did complain about uh, him getting betrayed by the woman, that was like a nitpick issue yeah because i think that scene with her is still yeah like even if you don't trust her and you feel like something's gonna happen i still enjoyed that little i really like the the party sequence i I yeah like her performance is very good as Mm. well and as well like it's a nice contrast between her Mm. and the bernie character being so obnoxious and a bit of yeah like the but even comic relief of i really like that stan is in that scene as well like yeah, like, uh, and I, I like the copper as well. The when they're driving from the convention, like he stops the car, <laughs> and there's like ten people drinking in his own car. Like it's uh, such a seventies New York vibe. Yeah, like even when they're driving, it doesn't feel like LA. Like, no, it doesn't at all. That's what I'm saying. Like you, you would never come away from that film getting the strong sense of LA at all from it. Like it's really, 
it's uh i think intentional i would imagine and did you get the joke at the end of the movie what was the joke at the end of the movie the joke is that when bernie's trying to sell uh stuff for uh Gene hackman's character in the convention it's a device that if you ring the the other number it doesn't ring Mm. But the microphone turns into the the phone receiver turns into a microphone that they can record from. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, the phone rings. He picks it up, and there's nothing, so he hangs up, and then it rings again. Two minutes later, and it's the recording of him playing saxophone, so he knows that his room has been bugged. Mm. But it is not that his room has been bugged. It, it was. <laughs> Your man's device that they're using for um, the phone. <laughs> but because he's useless, the phone actually rings to turn it on. And I was like, useless until the end. And obviously, it's kind of weird that like Harrison Ford hired his competition, but his competition yeah. is so useless. <clears throat> yeah. No, I did not pick up on that. That's quite funny. Bernie had already disappeared from my mind at that point. I do like that ending scene, though. I think it's quite... Yeah, like uh, it was a, a, a very good ending for the character and for the film to end in. Like, uh, it brings the, the whole paranoia feeling together, tied mm. to, in a very neat bow. Yeah. But like I said, the twist is the kind of... It's a problem sometimes with mystery movies mm. that this is a mystery movie, is that the setup often is more interesting than the actual, the actual resolution payoff, yeah. yeah it's very hard to have a great setup <clears throat> and a payoff that lives up to the great setup yeah but like it's very interesting as well because like audio wise uh like filmmaking really changed uh there's pre-terminator 2 <laughs> and post-terminator 2 because terminator 2 was the first like digital recording of audio mm. So, like, you see, like, war movies and stuff that the it's kind of, in particular, that the sound is not very clean. Mm. And I, I think that it benefits in this movie. The, the sound is kind of murky because, it, like, the whole movie sounds like it's been recorded from, like, a yeah. device. Yeah. So, like, in the room. And I think that they did kind of ex- explore that further than usual because sound it's bad sound but on mm. purpose so it's good sound yeah if that makes sense yeah because even like the the, the echo of the motorcycle in the hall on yeah the, on in the middle of the, i love the those store. those shots and um those shots in that their big warehouse <clears throat> in their big warehouse office i love those just like there's some really beautiful like very very wide shots like where they're kind of They've come out and they're on the bike and everything and um, your one gets on and then he just like slowly walks out of frame. Some like really, really beautiful shots. Um, but yeah, no, I like about the um, the the audio as well, as you're saying, is like a lot of the time there's kind of like um, like different levels to it where you're kind of like, you know, kind of like when you see Harrison Ford in the, um, you know, you're kind of seeing a video within a, within a film and everything. But um, what I like as well is sort of how the interpretation of the the original recording changes so like every time you hear it or every time you get a kind of a flashback to the actual scene of them meeting and stuff it's slightly different you know and even as you as you kind of like as he plays it over in his head whenever he realizes that uh it's uh, Robert Duvall's dead not um not the girl that you know he's it's then it's getting a whole other like the 
every time it's just read slightly differently and I think that's quite interesting and like the audio is used just in slightly different ways like it's it's really interesting. Yeah, it's one of those few films that uh, they use of flashbacks within the movie. Like yeah. showing stuff that <clears throat> has been already shown in the movie mm. works quite well. Yeah. Because usually it's kind of like a lazy way of trying to get the audience yeah. to understand what's happening. But in here it feels embedded into the nature of the, the film. Mm. That is why it's so surprising that the dream sequence exists. <laughs> Especially since the the film was edited by Walter March, who yeah. did The Godfather and, and Apocalypse Now for Coppola. Uh, yeah, and that which... it feels like, and it feels so. It feels like something that they shot later and inserted. Yeah, like... and Walter March, like he does a great job in this. And oh yeah, Also yeah, yeah, Richard yeah. Chu, which I'm not that familiar with his work, mm. but uh, Walter March is like famously good at wrestling with like. Uh, hard to handle films mm. like Apocalypse Now and The Godfather that yeah. they're unwieldy to make interesting mm. and pacing is like In- yeah, incredibly important. He's a master of pacing. Yeah, like um, we'll see even like Apocalypse Now where they had like hours and hours of footage that was just you know he had to wade through like a have you seen um hearts of darkness actually yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah you really understand i understand why somebody full, would have a heart attack in the the full, yeah jesus the full level of um insanity that in the jungle that was going on in the making of that film i do like it is obvious from watching this that coppola's influences have always been more of a european aesthetic than a yeah, hollywood aesthetic. blow up is very very strong in the background of this yeah, like a blow up and, um, and like I mentioned before, the conformist. Uh, also, uh, so like the third man, I felt. Yeah. Which is like. Oh, yeah. I didn't. That's actually interesting. I didn't um, really pick up on that, but I'd agree with that. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And it's the interesting thing of the third man as well, because it's one of the few film noirs that, are, that is uh, from. Europe, let's say, mm. that is uh, of the classic film noirs. So it does feel all, like set in Europe. Yeah, mm. but like it's European, like it's it's a Graham Greene, it's a mm. British production. Mm. The only American bit of it is Oscar, Oscar, Orson Welles, Orson Welles, Oscar <laughs> Welles. Jesus, my name's today. <laughs> but, sorry, Bill Burr. Um It's Bill Butler. Uh, but, <laughs> Yeah, the, like uh, it is a, a fairly European kind of picture that uh, it doesn't uh, guide the audience that much. It, it's sometimes ahead of the audience, mm. which is not traditional Hollywood. No. But at the same time, it's like you notice how good the 70s it, was yeah, that it, this is being released by a major studio. It's like, very new Hollywood, like definitely there's an awful lot of characteristics there, but... Um, what I was going to ask you was, uh, what did you think of the soundtrack? Well, like, uh, I did enjoy the soundtrack. Mm. Uh, I think it's very 70s. <laughs> uh, like, uh, it felt a little bit like police squad-ish. Kind of dun, oh, dun, dun, really? Dun, dun. Like, you uh, yeah, could almost, points. like, wait for, like, a siren to go in the background or something. But it's, like, one of those, it feels like a modern score in the way that it doesn't have any melody. That mm like usually scores in the 70s were very classical based like yeah. or jazzy mm. and this is neither no it's very, it's very melancholy 
yeah, it's very kind of like proto techno almost. <laughs> that like uh, synth before synth, let's say. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with that. Um, this it's Howard Shire though. It's the um, it's the same guy who did um, who did Zodiac, which I think is interesting because there's certain. It is very familiar. Yeah, now. that is yeah, the yeah, second yeah. Zodiac connection. Yeah, I know. Um, no, there's certain. Um, because I was when expecting I... when you said, "Oh, there's another connection to like a baby in the background is Robert Downey Jr. or something." <laughs> no, um... overacting in the background. <laughs> No, just playing Robert Downey Jr. Um, Baby Jr. Don't don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, because um, I when I first I, when I first watched this, um, I was like that that soundtrack because there's certain kind of sort of dark piano bits where it's just you know you're kind of playing like a few dark notes that are very very zodiac, and I really noticed it this time watching it, like not in a bad way, but. You know, it's not in the kind of a, um, uh, what's his name? Your man always works in Tim Burton. Uh, Danny Elfman. Yes, it's not Danny Elfman where every... I am good with names. (laughs) It's not Danny Elfman where every soundtrack sounds the fucking same. And you've got that kind of... So David Shire just uh, stays on the right side of a piano. Yes. He doesn't know what the left side does. Well, uh, yeah, the, the question that I was going to have for mm. you was, uh, when was the first time that you seen this movie? Because I think that it's particularly now it does have a different way of taking the movie. I'd imagine if you watched it originally, like before, let's say 2008. Um, no, I didn't watch it before 2008. I watched it maybe two, three years ago. I said, no, I'd say about three years ago was probably the first time I watched it. So after, like, the Patriot. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, but you can, I think, um, I'd say the first time I watched it, I probably wouldn't have made those connections as quick as I would now, necessarily. Yeah. But now watching it, like, you know, it's it feels really prescient, like, definitely. Yeah, like, uh, um, that's why you have... Uh, Audio uh, listeners don't see this, but like she's taped uh, the webcam in her camera, so people uh, <laughs> hackers can't record. Them. I listen to David Snowden. So, um. <laughs> so like uh, somebody is like, if there's but one not Harry on my Cole, phone, not on my phone. I'll I'll keep the selfie mode active. <laughs> well, like uh, otherwise, it's like how can you take all the wonderful selfies that we take? I know, but my um, phone, which contains. <laughs> sensitive information i'm selectively um private um <laughs> what's the like uh, the other thing that i thought interesting the movie is mm. not interesting it's just that my mind wanders sometimes after a movie mm. uh, i had to watch it twice because really? I, I was very tired when i watched it the first time uh, and i kind of made a whole mess in my head of what the film was <laughs> And I watched it the second time, and all I kept thinking was, like, imagining Richard Nixon taking notes. <laughs> kind of like, what, the, they have a microphone like that? We have to get one. Kissinger? <laughs> Kissinger? I do wonder exactly what the, the exact technical setup of the Oval Office plugging was. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, what's your favorite thing about the movie? Um, I think my favorite thing is 
Um, God, I'm going to get another Zodiac reference. Um, no, this is not a Zodiac reference. This is more a David Fincher reference. Um, what I love about the film is, especially the, see- the scenes where, there's like one or two scenes where he's kind of doing his actual editing. And I think the scenes of him editing are one of my favorite things about the film the way they're shot and the way they're edited and it made me think of um Dave Fincher in general how he uses kind of insert shots and detailed shots and stuff but Mm. um particularly in Zodiac and how like all those scenes of whenever they're um taking copies of the ciphers and everything like those kind of overhead shots and the way even the way that they handle the letters not to touch yeah yeah these the quick little you know so I you know, it's the kind of it's the kind of way of shooting that Fincher is obviously inspired by. But um, those whole sequences of him editing, and that's something I really love about cinema is that it can capture just a scene of someone doing something with their hands, like making something, or and when it's done right, it can be incredibly cinematic and completely and, unique to, uh, yeah. to cinema. That like you can't, yeah, you can't have that in any other medium. It's very hard to capture a process like that. <clears throat> but yeah, no, that that that's the the scene I always I always enjoy that most when he's especially whenever kind of the second time round whenever he does like a second pass at it and he has like his little handmade thing where he feeds it in and he's able to like just he just take down the background noise and oh, yeah, just like, a complete master at work like and it's really that in like two second shows his <clears throat> yeah craft yeah that he you is... see and even the fact that you well it's in a different scene where he says that he makes all his own equipment but like you know, he, he he cares that much that he will sit down and, and make these very de- like detailed, delicate machines. To... Unlocks all his equipment behind the like <laughs> yeah. least sturdy <laughs> fence I've ever seen. Like, uh, looks like as he's closing the, the gate that the whole thing is going to fall down. <laughs> I do like that, though, how clearly uncomfortable he is at the party <laughs> where they're all kind of milling around with their drinks and everything and around his precious equipment. My... Uh favorite thing on the movie is Gene Hackman's performance. Yeah. I think that it is one of the his best performances mm, and which I, yeah. is a lot it's saying a lot considering like yeah. his body of work is just incredible. Mm. Uh, and also so varied like you can't imagine it's like one of those like he looks like a character actor. Yeah. Like, as in somebody that can just like he's a character actor that was given lead roles. Mm. Like he you can't imagine that Harry Cole is the same guy as Royal Tannenbaum. No, no. And or even if you compare it to like the French Connection or something, a film that came out. Yeah, Popeye. Very, you know, like thing. when did the French Connection? Seventy. It's uh, seventy six, I think. Yeah, you know, you're similar, very you know, the same era, but two completely different characters. The other thing with uh, with that performance it, is that it feels mm. very. Uh, grounded which will be very hard to do for that kind of role yeah uh, like doing somebody that is that uh, neurotic off. yeah and it could have gone to the other side like mm. uh, oh definitely and i think it's a nice balance that he has with john Cazali about like how mm. like like w- fucking like ready to spring that Stan is that like he's like it looks like a cocker spaniel that is like waiting <laughs> for a toy to be thrown yeah uh, well call it's like the the quiet man measured yeah it's uh uh Gene Hackman's greatest performance since A Bridge Too Far well he murders the Polish dialect <laughs> <laughs> one, that's the one thing Gene Hackman <laughs> did wrong <laughs> 
Everything very, is authentic except his accent. In a very long career, I think we'll forgive him that. Like. <clears throat> and what is your least favorite thing? Uh, I, if I was a betting man, I'd be putting money on one thing. But what is your least favorite thing? The dream sequence. <laughs> Definitely. Like, it, yeah, it just it feels out of place. It feels unnecessary. It feels just from a different film doesn't yeah it's and even even gene hackman's performance in the dream sequence is not good like it's badly shot it's badly edited it's yeah badly scripted yeah like <laughs> it's all the, bad there's like literally no redeeming qualities to that scene no. my least favorite thing is the twist because, okay yeah. uh, even though it's well shot mm. well edited well written it's everything that the dream sequence is not but I feel that the twist affects everything that came before it, while the yeah. dream sequence just sits there. Like you, mm, yeah, you could not, fast yeah. forward through the, yeah, through the, through that. But the twist is kind of like I said, it's a twist for the sake of a twist in a film that is so measured in its approach that with, mm. with the exclusion of the dream sequence, everything is there for a reason. Yeah, and it just doesn't amount to much that way. Character wise, yes. But plot-wise, something like a film that it's so dependent on plot, yeah. in a way, that, uh, like, the film that is most dependent on plot so far that oh, we've recorded, like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. is the one that lives or die by its plot, and I think that it just doesn't stick the landing that well. No. Like, even though the last scene, like, the actual last scene is spectacular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It kind of pulls it back at the very end, I think. Yeah, like, it kind of left me with a good taste. Yeah, that's... So, when you say that you didn't like the ending, you, you really didn't like, like, the last third. Not yeah, the, 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 yeah, the twist until... <clears throat> like, from the moment that Duval gets killed to yeah. the moment that mm. he gets back to his apartment. Like, I didn't like that. Mm. And the other thing that I really liked, just going back to Jim Hackman's performance, mm. something that I forgot to mention, that I like how his character is that he's a jazz musician. And it's so interesting for somebody that is so exact. His favorite yeah. music is something something that has no exact notes. Mm. It's like his way of freeing himself is the only time that he breaks outside a parameter because he plays jazz of yeah. another recording but both times that he plays from the same recording he plays a different tune mm, that's well i think that's kind of meant to be his release so that in the very very last scene that's it's all he has like his you know yeah, his sax his... and no wallpaper <laughs> yeah well his soul is is you know he's kind of lost everything he's a broken man but he still has a saxophone and that's... he's even lost his you know his little statue of mary you know oh just yeah that, that religion thing it was yeah, another actually, thing that was like... i meant to ask you that was one of my other questions was how you you interpreted that it's just sitting there for no reason i think because uh like i think the part <coughs> of it i think the part of it is to demonstrate his guilt for being part of a murder before and uh yeah. it's there as in like uh i'm guilty of the sin basically but at the same time i think that it doesn't it, like it i don't have a problem with the character being religious in the movie mm. but if you're gonna call attention to it it, it has to have a reason it, to be there yeah, yeah when he I said wondered. like oh jesus christ don't say that mm. it kind of felt slightly out of place but yeah. at the same time, it's not something that uh, felt so out of place that... You had I, a big problem yeah. with it. Yeah, I don't know. I I felt maybe that it was kind of there because it was the 70s kind of as a way to set him apart even more from everyone else. 
you know, and the fact that he's so sort of square and meticulous. Especially in California kind of thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, like post-60s kind of, you know, that kind of character. It kind of weirdly made me think of um, The Wicker Man in some ways, kind of how that character in, um, in The Wicker Man is so, like, that I think of as well as being like, do not take the, the Lord's name in vain. And Nicholas Gage doesn't say that. <laughs> the bees. Um... <laughs> um yeah, and any um, closing thoughts? And no, like uh, thank you for uh, ratifying that glaring uh, yeah. uh, blind spot that I had. And now I can pretty much say that I've seen most of Coppola's work. Coppola completest. And like I said, thank you for for giving me the conversation to have this no conversation problem. about. I'm glad that I had an excuse to watch it again. It's always very enjoyable. Next week's film uh, was chosen by me. It is Claire Denis' uh, 35 Shots of Rum. And I was Ricardo Deacon. I was Orla Magnus. Thank you for listening. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our links will be down in the show notes. Until next time. Thanks for listening.